Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First uh, John 1.9 if uh, necessary. Turn off your cell phones if necessary, and uh, then uh, I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening just to spend some time in fellowship around your word, to be encouraged and strengthened as we study your word, to be reminded that you have a plan and that your plan incorporates uh, all of human history from the creation to its ultimate resolution in the future. And for each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of the body of Christ, you have a specific plan, a specific destiny, and you are involved intimately in our lives in preparing us and training us for our future destiny as joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, we pray that as we uh, go through this uh, sample of prayer in Solomon's dedication of the temple, that we can see how he uses the Scripture in his prayer, how he uses your promises, and claims them within the context of his prayer so that we can learn how to do the same thing in our own prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, it has been a while since we were in First Kings on Tuesday night. I think it's been three or four weeks at least because we had the voting on a Tuesday night, which we didn't have class, and then we had the conference, and Spring break last week, so now we're at it, and we started First Kings back in, was it October? Something like that, and it's been a tough time for consistency on Tuesday nights because of Christmas and the build-out and trips to Kiev, but I think that we have about two months at least until I go to Israel where we will make some progress and through most of the summer, so we won't be having this hit-and-miss sort of thing. So let's have a little review. Uh, First and Second Kings should be understood as one uh, book. They are written during the time of the, of the uh, Babylonian captivity, and so part of the purpose of the books of, of this book of, of, of Kings is to remind the people of how God blessed them in light of the Mosaic law 
and how God judged them in light of the Mosaic law. And ultimately that resulted in the loss of their possession of the land, the northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586. And this is important to understand, especially in light of where we are in our current study of of 1 Kings 8 and Solomon's prayer of dedication, because his prayer of dedication really lays out what is going to happen. It foreshadows the coming events in the history of Israel and their removal from the land And it is a call upon God in a very prescient manner to forgive the people when they turn to God and when they uh, turn to him with a whole heart. And so that's, as I pointed out in the previous lessons, a key idea in this prayer is his request, his supplication to God to hear the people when they uh, turn to him, when they confess their sins, and to forgive them and to bring them back to the land. And again and again and again as we go through this prayer, there are seven specific petitions in the, in the prayer of 1 Kings 8, and they're all oriented towards ultimately God forgiving them and bringing them back to the land from all the nations that he scatters them to, not just from Babylon, which is what occurred in uh, 536, 537, but ultimately that worldwide regathering doesn't occur until you come to the towards the end of the church age the first worldwide regathering according to Isaiah 11, uh, 11, 11 there are two regatherings the first is in unbelief and the second is in belief and it's that second one that is the ultimate complete regathering of regenerate uh, Jews to the land to establish the messianic kingdom. So when we study kings, that really fits within this uh, total context of the Mosaic law. You can't understand kings if you don't understand, uh, especially Leviticus 26, which is the blessings that God promises Israel if they're obedient and Leviticus 27, which are, are the judgments are what we've, uh, typically described as the five stages or five cycles of divine discipline. You see this uh, mirrored also or repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. So those chapters, those four chapters, form the backdrop for understanding this prayer. And what we see here is how you have Solomon, who is at the probably the apex of his own spiritual growth, and the apex of his achievements in terms of building uh, this special house of worship for God that was the heart's desire of his father David, that has been his desire and his focal point as he's uh, united, organized the, uh, the kingdom and has built the kingdom and now built the temple, and he is he's dedicating it. And so we see how his thinking is so saturated with Scripture. And he's followed the stipulations of the Mosaic Law, up to this point at least, we see in that the king was commanded to write out a copy of the law in the presence of the priest continuously. And this was a mandate from God to make sure that the king did not become distracted with his own glory, with his own agenda, with his uh, various uh, projects, and that the king would take that time on a daily basis to 
write out what the Mosaic Law said, make his own copy so that he could uh, think about it, meditate on it day and night. And Solomon uh, pictures this. His, his thinking is so saturated with the content of the word that when he prays this prayer, it's not. it doesn't fit a precise pattern of, okay, I'm going to pray through. Uh, my first petition is going to relate to the first cycle of discipline. My second petition is going to relate to the second cycle of discipline and so forth. But he, he weaves it together in this uh, remarkable prayer that shows how deeply the word has just saturated his own thinking and his own way of looking at everything. And that is for us an example. First, uh, uh, first Corinthians chapter 10, uh, three talks about the fact that in terms of the Old Testament, these things in terms of both the obedience and disobedience of Old Testament Israelites happened as an example for us. So we go back to these types of uh, events and situations and prayers to find patterns and uh, examples of how we are to use Scripture, how we are to use doctrine, how we are to face various situations and circumstances in life. And that's part of the job of the pastor in teaching the congregation and teaching the whole counsel of God is to help us learn the Bible, not as an end in itself, but because as you and I spend our time in the Word every day, letting it saturate our thinking, then when we're out and about in the day-to-day course of our lives, at work, driving down the freeways, shopping in the stores, spending time with, with friends, family who are going through good times, bad times, whatever, we are able to look at those situations through the grid of Scripture. And as we look at life, we can then see situations and say, well, that that reminds me of what Ruth went through, and that reminds me of what what happened with uh, with uh, uh, Joshua. That reminds me of how David had to handle a problem with authority while he is being persecuted by God's anointed, and he's hiding out in the wilderness, and he has every opportunity to to take the life of this unjust king. And yet, rather than do that, he says that he's not going to touch God's anointed. And all these kinds of things, so we develop a biblical grid or framework that allows us in the course of life to be able to think about our own life, our own problems, our own situations through that, that biblical lens and that biblical framework. So we come to First, King, First and Second Kings, and there's three basic divisions. The first 11 chapters, uh, 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17, and... 2 Kings 8 to 25. In the first section, we have the United Kingdom under Solomon. Then the, Solomon's, then the kingdom splits when Solomon dies. Rehoboam is the king, is his son, and he takes over Judah in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And then in 722, the northern kingdom is uh, taken out by the Assyrians, and we have just one kingdom from 2 Kings 18 to 25. And so here we have the basic chronology which we've covered before, but that gives us just the orientation. Now, we're still in the first section in 1 Kings 1 to 11, the section dealing with the United Kingdom. And we've looked at the establishment of Solomon on the throne in the first two chapters. We talked about the Adonijah 
uh, conspiracy to take over the kingdom, the accession of, of uh, Solomon as David has him anointed before he dies, has him crowned, uh, David's death, and then various uh, executions and operations on Solomon's part to secure the kingdom from internal conspiracies. Then in chapters 3 through 8, we see the rise of Solomon, and this culminates in this eighth chapter we're in now, which is the dedication to the temple. And then chapters 9 through 11 will describe the decline of of Solomon as he gets involved with polygamy, influenced by his his, uh, various wives. And here we have a, a great example of a believer who reaches spiritual maturity and is just... Uh, just graced out by God in so many fabulous ways, and he has everything. And we look at what he writes in uh, Psalms, we look at what he writes in Proverbs, and we just wonder how in the world, with, with all of that behind him, could he fail the way he does? But that just shows that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And any of us can succumb to sin nature and fall in the same way. And so Solomon goes through his... Uh, frantic search for happiness through polygamy, idolatry, and eventually his death. And so this is locates us within our current study. Now, we're, we started chapter 8, and we saw that it began in the first part of the chapter. Now, here's where I have to see how, whoa, how slick this actually is. That didn't work, did it, Laura? That's not, I'm not saying that's Laura's fault. It's just that that didn't work. Okay, here we are. Okay, 1 Kings 8. This is trying out all new technology. I always try to learn while I'm in the pulpit, you know. It just adds a new level of excitement to everything. Never know how these computers are going to work. Okay, we're in 1 Kings chapter 8 in the first part. Of the chapter, we saw how, saw Solomon bring the ark into the temple and all of the pomp and circumstance related to that, uh, showing how uh, serious they were about their worship of God and all of the things that they did in uh, making sure that the people uh, focused on God and not just, it's not ceremony for ceremony's sake, but honoring the God who is not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but who is the God who redeemed Israel uh, from slavery in Egypt. And then Solomon began his introductory address in verse 12, and he focused on what God had done in the past and the promises that God had made to David and to Moses. So this sets the context for his prayer in terms of these two covenants. And as we've studied so many times, we see that God establishes his relationships with his creatures, uh, with man, on the basis of these legal contracts from the uh, creation covenant, its modification in the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, and then with Israel under the Abrahamic covenant. And it is that Abrahamic covenant that provides the framework for all subsequent history. And the key element there is the promise that Uh, Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, God promises, in relationship to how Gentiles treat Israel. And that all subsequent history 
is Israel-centered. Whether they're apostate or whether they are in obedience, all human history is related to the Abrahamic covenant and is related to uh, God's working in Israel, even the church age, because uh, it plays a role, and ultimately, as we've studied in the New Covenant on Thursday night, the New Covenant is a covenant with Israel and the church, but it is because there's that covenant shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, it brings in a new priesthood, it brings in a new high priest, which is Jesus Christ, and we are related to the New Covenant by virtue of our relationship as believer priests to the high priesthood of Christ. And the New Covenant is the expansion of the third paragraph in the Abrahamic Covenant, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse, and it manifests the specifics of how God is going to bless all people through the seed of Abraham, who according to Galatians chapter 3 is the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Solomon starts by reminding the people what God promised to David, the Davidic covenants, the expansion of the seed promise, and to Moses in the uh, Mosaic covenant, which is what is operational at that particular time. And then we began the prayer in verse 22, is that uh, is the text back on the back row? Doug, can you all see that okay? Sconey, can you see that okay? All right. Uh, Solomon stands up on the altar, uh, stands up on a little platform that he built before the altar of the Lord, and he spreads out his hands towards heaven, and we have gone through this introductory prayer, and the uh, key verse in this prayer, once again, we see in, in verse 25, He prays, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. So that reminds them again, reminds God in uh, in the opening of the prayer that he's grounding his prayer in previous revelation. He is saying, God, this is what you promised, and you have fulfilled this now in terms of allowing me to build this temple. Now fulfill the rest of your promises. And then in verse 28, he says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to a supplication. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. And we saw as we went through this that there were at least four different words for prayer in this verse and in these verses, which are repeated again and again as we go through uh, the rest of this chapter. And that's what ties it together. The four words for prayer and the word salah for, for forgive are the words that are constantly interwoven through the rest of the chapter, giving it a tight uh, unity in, in the Hebrew. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in all of literature, not just in Hebrew literature. And it shows the tremendous wisdom and skill that Solomon had even uh, in the writing. And so he begins in verse 28, as we saw last time, have regard or turn your face literally. Uh, it's an anthropomorphism. Turn your face to the prayer of your servant, to a supplication. Listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays today. Those Requests are uh, infinitives, but they all lead to the final 
an, an ultimate request, which is in verse 30, to listen to the supplication of your servant, your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. That sets the theme for the whole prayer of dedication, that when the, your people Israel turn to this place, putting their focus on the temple as the place where God resided, the place that manifests his name on the earth, that when they turn here, and that word for turn, as we'll see, is a key word. It's the, it's the Hebrew word shuv, and it means to turn. Sometimes it's uh, translated repent. And when a Jew, uh, today even in uh, modern Hebrew, when they, uh, you have some, a Jew that is a secular Jew or non-observant Jew and they become a, an observant Jew, they say that it's doing uh, uh, shuva. They are turning. They are repenting. And it comes, at, this terminology, as we'll see tonight, comes right out of uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. And so this whole prayer is grounded in the fact that, that God has promised in Deuteronomy 30 that when they turn to him, that he will forgive them and restore them uh, to the land. So that is what, what Solomon is praying, that when they pray toward this place here in heaven, hear and forgive. And now we enter into the main body of the prayer. There are seven petitions in this prayer, beginning in verse um, Verse 31, and then going down to uh, the not quite the end of the chapter because we have a final uh, blessing, but down to, um, takes us down about verse 51. So from 31 to 51, these 20 verses incorporate seven different, uh, seven different petitions. Okay, we'll look at the first one in verses 31 to 32, the first request. Now, what I'm going to do here, I don't usually use Lagos when I do this, but we, we're going to be doing a lot of cross-referencing so you can see where this comes from. So what I want to do is have a couple of different Bible versions up here so I can switch back and forth and everybody can be impressed with all the whiz-bang technology and we can uh, compare Scripture with Scripture very easily. So the first Request Each of these presents a, a situation, uh, usually described as if this happens, when this happens, and there's a, so there's a certain situation. Then a, there is a result, usually which involves some kind of calamity, some sort of dis- disobedience or divine discipline coming out of uh, Leviticus 26. Then there is a response from the people, usually expressed by turning, confessing sin, uh, praying, making supplication, and then there is a request to God, then hear and forgive. And this pattern goes all the way through these sections of this prayer. So the first situation has to do with what is termed by the Lord as the second great commandment. Remember the uh, Sadducees asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And uh, he said, uh, the rich young ruler said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And the second is likened to the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And this comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
uh, love your neighbor as yourself. It's quoted about four times in the New Testament outside of the Gospels, and it's called the royal law in James chapter 2. But what's interesting is that we see a lower standard of love in the Old Testament than we do for the church-age believer, and that is because of the differences between uh, the dynamics of the spiritual life in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, every Jew, believer and unbeliever, is commanded to love their neighbor, who could be a believer or an unbeliever, as they love themselves. And the point is that we all have self-love. Despite the, the uh, uh, various uh, statements by modern psychology that many people hate themselves and have low self-image, the Bible affirms that no man, Ephesians chapter 5, when it's talking about husbands loving their wives as they, as the, and loving them as their own body, the Scripture then sets forth a gnomic or universal principle, for no man hates his own flesh. So if you know all the modern psychologists from Freud to Jung to Maslow, they all say you can have low self-image because you don't like yourself. Well, that's in contrast to the Bible, which says no man hates his own flesh, period. The only reason you think you do is because you have such a high view of yourself, you've disappointed yourself. But the bottom line is we all love ourselves. So uh, the standard in the Old Testament for love was to love your neighbor as you love yourself because you do love yourself. But the standard in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus says, love one another, that is believer to believer, He's addressing the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. So it, the, the standard gets ratcheted up from loving as you love yourself to loving as Christ loved us. And so the standard in the, in the New Testament, the church age, is much higher. But here the mandate in Leviticus 19.18, the Mosaic Law, was to love, love your neighbor as, as yourself. So you get into this situ- situation where a man, rather than loving his neighbor sins against his neighbor. And the uh, Hebrew word for sin is hatav, which simply means to miss the mark. See, that's what's so great about having logos, is you can just immediately figure out what the Greek and the Hebrew is. Uh, If a man sins against his neighbor, violates the standard against his neighbor, and is made to take an oath, so it's in a courtroom situation, he has somehow... Uh, he has offended, he has violated, he has defrauded legally his neighbor. And so now it's in a courtroom situation, and he has to take an oath and to uh, swear out exactly what he has done under oath. And he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house. So it's a prayer to God. You've got a situation where you have two Israelites who are at odds with each other. One has offended the other. And now he comes and he has to take an oath. And one of the commandments, of the Ten Commandments, is that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And bearing false witness is not lying. It is it is a legal concept of not going into court and swearing swearing and then telling a falsehood uh, under oath. So the situation here is uh, where a man... A neighbor has uh, expressed a false witness against his neighbor, and it appears that there is an accusation against the neighbor where there is no witness or evidence. 
And so they are coming before the Lord in the uh, tabernacle or the temple in order to have it adjudicated in the house of the Lord. And so what Solomon is saying is if there is a sin and they come and swear, and he swears out an oath and it's a false oath, then hear in heaven and judge your servants. And so it is appeal, an appeal to the fact that God is the ultimate source of righteousness and justice in the land. And that all law, we can make an application here, that all law in, in human history ultimately derives from a divine standard. Because as Christians, we know that law in principle has its origin in the integrity of God, in his righteousness, and in his justice. So as believers, when we approach the concept of law, whether it is the law of the United States or law in the Roman Empire or law in under the Mosaic Law, all law is ultimately grounded in divine revelation and ultimately grounded in the fact that there, is, there are universal absolutes and a universal uh, legal righteous standard in God. So specifically under the Mosaic Law, it is God who is the ultimate judge in the affairs of Israel. And so Solomon says that it is up to God to secure and maintain justice in Israel. Here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his own way on his head. And by wicked here, he's not talking about sinner versus, or he's not talking about unbeliever versus believer. Because in the next phrase it says justifying uh, the righteous uh, by giving uh, to him according to his righteousness. Or in um, the uh, New King James Version, it reads, uh, justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And that's a poor translation because when we read justifying the righteous, we tend to think in terms of the uh, doctrine of justification by faith, a soteriological doctrine. But the context here isn't soteriology. It's not salvation, personal salvation. It is the being having justice or injustice in the courts. And so the first request of, of Solomon relates to the application of righteousness from the law to the day-to-day affairs in the life of the people of Israel and that justice will prevail. So he calls upon God to oversee the justice in Israel to make sure that those who violate the law are, are condemned, found out, discovered, and condemned, and those that obey the law are uh, dealt with according to uh, righteousness, that is the standard of the law, not divine righteousness, but the standard of the Mosaic law. So this is the first request, and again, it ties back to the Mosaic law, Leviticus 19.18. Other uh, passages you could look at for cross-references would be Leviticus 8.30 and 31, and comparing it to Exodus 22.8.8-11. Uh, now, The second request begins in verse 33. And the cause in relationship to this situation has to do with the military defeat of the people. And we see this in verse 33, when your people Israel, let me put that at the top, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy... When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you 
And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple. So the situation is that Israel is defeated because of sin. Now, here's an important principle to recognize. When you go to college, when you go to university, or when you're even in high school, and you're taught history, all history and all historians operate from some sort of framework of a philosophy of history. Everybody has one, just like everybody has a philosophy of life or a worldview. Some of it's thought through, some of it's not thought through, some of it's inconsistent, some of it's consistent. But there are a number of different uh, ways in which people interpret history. For example, the Greeks had something very much in common with uh, Eastern civilizations and their view of history, and that be, they had held to a doctrine of reincarnation. So they have this this cyclical view that everything just sort of recycles and it continues to go in various uh, various cycles. And when you hear people say, "Well, history repeats itself," that comes out of a and betrays a cyclical view of history. Now, there are trends, but trends are different from a cyclical view of history. Cyclical view of history, history isn't going anywhere. You just have endless cycles. And that is a very pagan view of history. Uh, Judaism, or actually the Old Testament, Israelite revelation, biblical revelation came along and said history is linear. It has a purpose, it has direction, and it is going from point A to ultimate resolution in point B. And you have various uh, derivatives and heretical manifestations of that. Marxism is that way. Marxism still sees history moving somewhere. Hegelian dialectic sees history moving somewhere, but it's, uh, it's, it's borrowed that from Christianity. Christianity has a linear history. The first question you ask, because of my training in history, I always get off on this. This is very important. Anytime you read Thomas Sowell, you read anybody, you listen to, to, to any political pundit today as they're analyzing the politics of today. They're anal- they bring in uh, different events of, of uh, American history and of past history. They're always operating within a framework of a philosophy of history. And if you know what to listen for, they can, they'll betray themselves in, in uh, very, various ways. And the three questions you ask when you're dealing with the philosophy of history is where is history going? Uh, what are the causative elements in history? And how is evil eventually dealt with in terms of, in terms of history? Is there any kind of absolute, in other words? And I'm just focusing on the first two. The first one is that, that biblically history goes somewhere. The second question is, what, co- what are the causative elements in history? Now, see, if you're a Marxist, you say that history is going somewhere, but the causative elements in history are related to the oppression of the, of the worker. Uh, they're related to economic causes. If you're a Hegelian, you, you base it in other facets. If you're, um, if you're in sociology, you're going to base it in, in different elements within, within society. And while all of these different things play a role, what the Bible says is the, the ultimate causative factor in history is spiritual. It is not material. It's not economics. It's not uh, education. It's not 
things that are going on uh, socially, social failures or other things. Those may be, even be manifestations of spiritual things, but they're not the causative factor. The causative factor is spiritual. And you see this in Israel's history and in the law because what God is saying is that they could, they could have a, a, a free market manual and be doing everything right according to the Chicago School of Economics or the Austrian School of Economics or whatever uh, free market uh, system that you want to uh, you want to go with. And if they're not right with God, then no matter what they do, it's going to fail. Because the ultimate issue in life is you can't draw this one-to-one correspondence between the material. A cause and effect, because God rules the affairs of men. And God is going to rule those affairs of men in terms of his plan and purposes. And that's why uh, we come back and we can say that in, in, in a place like America and in American history, because of missions, an emphasis on missions, because of an emphasis in support of Israel and support of the Jews, these are major spiritual factors that will ultimately outweigh other factors. Now, of course, when when a nation goes into spiritual rebellion and they are operating on the lie rather than the truth, then they're going to end up making bad decisions in all of these other areas. But the ultimate issue is that in terms of God's governing of human affairs is going to be in relation to his plan for Israel and his plan in terms of the church, in terms of their uh, mission, which is related to, uh, to carrying out the gospel and proclaiming the gospel throughout all the world. And so that becomes, you know, the, the most important thing. So when you look at making various selections for political leadership, one of the most, in, uh, aside from analyzing their views on in relation to the five divine institutions, the next important question is, what is their view towards Jews, and what is their view towards supporting Israel, especially the, the national claims of Israel in relationship to the fraudulent claims of the, the uh, so-called Palestinians and, and the Arabs? And if they're violating uh, two or three of the basic divine institutions, such as personal responsibility, or if they're in favor of civil unions and uh, homosexual marriage, and if they're uh, pro-Palestinian and want to uh, chop up the land that is has a divine right for Israel, then the support of a, any candidate from dog catcher to president that supports those policies is a recipe for divine judgment for a nation. And we see that today because we don't have too many options in terms of people who even understand uh, the divine institutions, even in the church. It's amazing. People just don't break these things down. And I'll probably do a little series on this before we get into the height of the election campaign just because people need to understand how, how do you take the divine institutions and use those as a guide for who to vote for. You know, it's not about whether they're a conservative or Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or whatever these issues are. It has to do with how they view personal responsibility, how they view marriage, the policies and the laws that they supported in relationship to the family. You realize that in 1955, 
a family of four almost had no tax liability because the way the tax logs were written was to allow families who were raising children to keep most of what they earned. But by the 1980s, uh, that had changed, and so just the way the tax laws were written were anti-family. And today you have the, we've had the, in the past the marriage penalty where two people living together would end up paying less income tax than two people who were married. That is anti-marriage. So when you have congressmen and senators and presidents and others voting for these kinds of tax packages that make it more difficult to be married, more difficult to raise a family, then they're anti-family, they're anti-marriage, they're anti-property, they're usually socialists, and all this runs counter to the divine institutions. But you don't hear people talking about that. And we see this the issue related to these spiritual things displayed in the history of Israel. So Solomon says, when your people Israel are defeated, notice he's, it's not really a maybe they will be and maybe they won't because he understands that in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29, it was very clear that Moses was saying that you will be disobedient, and when you are disobedient, God will take you from the land, and then when you are scattered to all the uh, lands of the earth and you turn back to God, then he will restore you. So it was understood on the basis of what what, uh, Moses had said, that Israel would eventually be removed from the land. So the situation in the second request has to do with their military defeat. We can think of some examples, such as uh, Joshua chapter 7, after the defeat of Jericho. Uh, the Jews were told not to uh, plunder Jericho, not to take, uh, uh, take Jericho, not, not to take the gold and the silver and all the possessions of the uh, Canaanites for themselves, but to destroy everything. And one man, Achan, decided that uh, he could get away with it, so he packed his knapsack full of uh, a lot of treasure and then buried it under his tent. And then when they went into the when the Israelites went into the next battle at Ai, uh, they went out to uh, fight the uh, city of Ai and to conquer it. And they were defeated in battle, and they had high casualties. And when they came back, even Moses was was distraught, saying, "God, why did you let this happen? Why are we going to be defeated?" And it was because there was sin and disobedience in the camp. And then they went through this whole procedure where they identified first the tribe and then the clan and the family and finally the identification of Achan as the one who was the sinner. And then all of his possessions had to be burned and he had to be executed and burned, purification, cleansing. And that once that sin purification took place, then the Israelites could go into battle and win. So you have this pattern under, from the Mosaic law that when the Israelites sinned, they would be defeated by the enemy, by their enemy. And this is seen in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, verse 17. Uh, Leviticus 26 is where we find the uh, five cycles of discipline. It starts in verse 14, but if you do not obey me, God says, and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And then we see the first cycle of discipline. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever. So it involves disease. It in, de, de, involves terror. Today we would call that a, um, 
post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety disorder or some other kind of disorder. Um, terror, consumption and fever, the waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away, and you will sow your seed uselessly. In other words, there will be economic consequences where there's no, no productivity, no matter how, how much you try, no matter how you use the latest and greatest technology, God is the one who grants uh, prosperity. God is the one who grants uh, fertility, and God is just going to make sure that uh, there's economic oppression, depression, recession. You'll sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up, indicating military disaster. Verse 17, I'll set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, military conquest, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Fear and terror again. So you have various examples of this in Israel's history. You had an example at Ai. As I stated earlier, you had various examples in the judges as the various foreign powers would come in and overrun uh, the tribes. You had the defeat by the Philistines at the Battle of Aphek. All of these were examples of, of uh, this type of discipline. In Deuteronomy 28:25, we see the parallel. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So this divine discipline is targeted to Israel. Now, the response is then given in verse, uh, at the end of the verse. Uh, if they turn to you again, there's the word shuv meaning to turn or to return, to go back. It has also the idea of change, but it relates to a a spiritual change. The reason they are now going to have victory instead of being defeated militarily is not because they gained a greater understanding of military tactics. It's not because they gained or acquired more advanced technology. It's because their relationship to God changed. And because their relationship to God changed, God will eventually give them victory. So they, the, the basic problem, and this is the problem that everybody has whenever we're defeated in any area of life, has to do with ultimately with sin. And we have to learn to be honest enough with ourselves to evaluate ourselves in terms of where there is continuing or ongoing sin. It's not just enough in spiritual growth to confess your sins. Now, it's enough to confess your sins to be restored to fellowship, but if 30 seconds later you do the same sin and you just keep that cycle going, then you're not growing, you're not going anywhere, there's no forward momentum, there's no, in Christ's terminology in John 15, there's no abiding in Christ, there's no walking in in the light, there's just this this in and out kind of yo-yo spirituality that's typical of, of baby believers. You confess your sin, and then two seconds later you do it again, then you confess your sin, two seconds later you do it, and you're just bouncing in and out of fellowship without any forward momentum. But there has to be a turning, and this is the idea of repentance. It's more than confession. Confession gets you back in fellowship, but it's turning, it's changing behavior. That's the same thing we saw in our lengthy study of Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the seven churches. 
every time Jesus condemns those churches for a list of, of behavior problems and sins, and it's not that they're not confessing their sins. Maybe they were, but they're not growing. They're not changing. And so each of those uh, letters, each of those critical evaluation reports ended with the challenge, repent, meaning to change, not to have remorse, not to put on sackcloth and ashes, not to uh, go through some sort of emotional religious revival or something like that, but simply to change and start being consistently obedient rather than consistently disobedient. So it begins with this turn, and then they turn again to you and confess. See, they're simultaneous actions. It's not first one, then the other. They turn to you again and confess, confess your name, and pray and make supplication to you in this house. The issue of confessing your name is that they've been involved in idol worship, and now they're turning back to the true God, and they're going to apply the first commandment to have no other gods besides the God of of Israel. So they are going to confess uh, God and pray and make supplication to you in this house. We've seen these different words that are used for prayer, presenting a request, and then a more intense form, uh, making supplication, making an entreaty to God, uh, making a supplication to you in this house. Notice it's always temple-related. Then here in heaven, this is the request to God, then here in heaven, forgive and bring them back to the land. Forgive their sin and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. And this is related to what we find in the uh, in the covenant in Deuteronomy. So when we go to Deuteronomy 29 and we read through Deuteronomy 29, this is the affirmation of the land covenant. And that was the, the point in uh, verse 33, when they're defeated, then when they turn back and confess, bring them back to the land. Where do they have to be before God can bring them back to the land? They had to be out of the land. So it doesn't state that, but it is clearly there under the fifth cycle of discipline and out of the land. And as you go all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 29, it talks about all these things, how God is going to bless them. And then when you get into Deuteronomy chapter 30, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have said before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return, see, doing shuvah, same word that's used, shuv, that's used in uh, uh, 1 Kings 8, and you return to the Lord God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So bring him back to the land. So this second request flows directly out of the uh, Leviticus uh, 26, uh, first uh, cycle of discipline passage, and also related to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Then we have the third request. And the third request is in verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain. Now, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the um, third cycle of discipline. That in Leviticus 26.19, let me go back over here. Leviticus 26.19, let me see. 
Here we are. God says this is the second cycle of discipline. If also, after, verse 18, if also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Uh, your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and trees in the land will not yield their fruit. If then you act with hostility against me and unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you and uh, seven times according to your sin. So the fact that the uh, sky is like uh, iron, the earth like bronze indicates there's no rain. The ground is hard. The sky is just you know hot, dry. Uh, when you're out there in the desert and you look at that hot uh, 115 degree Judean desert sun. You know why it says the sky is like uh, the sky is like uh, iron. It's just everything's hard, and uh, there's no rain. So this is this is the uh, second cycle of discipline. Now this is also important to understand because when uh, Elijah comes along, and remember all this is simply an introduction to Elijah. When Elijah comes along in 1 Kings 17 and he just pops up on the scene before King Ahab in the north and he announces to Ahab that it won't rain again in Israel until I say so and then Elijah disappears. Elijah's not just saying that because, oh, that sounds like a good thing to say. He is implementing as a prophet, as the prosecutor of the Mosaic law, he is implementing uh, the Mosaic Law, and he is saying that God is now disciplining the nation according to the second cycle of discipline and bringing a drought in the land, and uh, at the same time, this drought is an uh, apologetic against Elijah, who, I mean, excuse me, against the God of the, of the uh, Phoenicians, Baal, who is the God of rain and the God of fertility. And so Elijah is sh- going to be showing that it is, uh, only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brings rain or holds back the rain and that the false gods can't provide any kind of security or prosperity. And so this, this uh, prayer, this third part of the prayer of, of uh, Solomon's is when the heavens are shut up, there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Notice, sin is what caused the drought. It wasn't a me- just a meteorological cycle. It wasn't global warming. It wasn't hydrofluorocarbons released into the atmosphere too much C-14. It has to do ultimately with sin and not the sin of industrialization, but sinning against God. So uh, then the, so the, the uh, situation is drought, the situation is their response is they, the people pray and they confess God's name, turn from their sin under discipline. Then he prays to God here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain in your land, which you have given your people for an inheritance. And so that takes us through the third request. And the point that I want you to see here is how... Solomon is praying on the basis of the Scripture. God made promises. These aren't the kind of promises we usually think of, like um, uh, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God will guard your heart. See, that's the promise. If you pray, focus on God, God will uh, guard you with that, with that peace. But 
these are positive promises, but the promises in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29 and 30 are promises of judgment. And so what Solomon is doing here is he's saying, you promise to judge us, and you will, but you also promise that when the people turn back, you will bring them back to the land. And so his whole prayer here is a manifestation of the faith rest drill. He is calling upon God to be faithful to what he said in his word, and not only in judgment, but also in grace and in restoration. And what I want you to get out of this is that he's, he, he's relying on Scripture. He's using the Scripture to present his case towards God. He is, he's thought it through. It's not just some sort of superficial, ad hoc uh, prayer to God, but he, it is a well-structured, a well-organized Request where he builds a case based on Scripture because the Scripture has so saturated his soul. That's how we pray, are, are supposed to pray, and this is how we're supposed to use the faith rest drill. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study these situations that we see how believers in the past, even in other dispensations, utilize the same fundamental principles and procedures that we have in the church age. We see how you have been faithful to your word in different dispensations and at different times, different circumstances, but you are always faithful and true to your word. You are a God of righteousness and justice, but also a God of love and a God of mercy. And just as you promised to bring judgment and discipline in our lives, you also deal with us in grace and in mercy, and you forgive us when we confess our sins, and you bless us as we walk with you, and Father, we are so thankful for all the many ways in which you have blessed us and blessed this congregation, and we pray that we will be able to keep our focus upon you, and unlike the Israelites of old and unlike Solomon who were distracted from the truth of your word, we pray that we might remain faithful and true. Uh, because of Christ who died on the cross for us, in whose name we pray, amen.